you have to be both introspective and extrospective, and you have to be, call it aggressive or assertive about reaching out and connecting and exposing yourself to this perspective and the truths of other people without judgment, but open to it. Because the more you take in, the more you can evolve your own capacities, your own understanding. This is Crisis Cast 2020 with me, Toby Goodman, a podcast where I get timely wisdom from experts in life and business. These guests will answer my five questions, sharing wisdom and insights to help you and me get through this global shitstorm. Today on Crisis Cast 2020, an innovator, a business leader, an author and international speaker, Chris Colbert talks about why what was socially unacceptable last month is absolutely fine now, a hope for a new minimum wage, intimacy, finding the upside, fun in the kitchen, the power of a blank piece of paper and learning to embrace the value of moments in time. Here's my therapeutic conversation with the brilliant Chris Colbert. Before we start the show, I have something for you if you identify as pod curious. It's perfect for you if you're an expert, consultant or business owner. Maybe you're wondering if podcasting is worth the effort, especially now, or perhaps you've tried podcasting in the past but have been disappointed with the results. In this free guide, Podstar, I'll share the exact seven steps we use to help publish over 2,000 podcasts each month. To get instant access, go to podcastnetworksolutions.com. Chris Colbert, thank you very much for coming on to Crisis Cars 2020. Thrilled to be here. Thanks, man. So you're in Boston. What's been your experience on a local level of the pandemic so far? We are in week six of the shelter-in-place slash lockdown uh, instructions. I think it's been... 80% clear in terms of what the government, both state and local city, have been trying to convey. But I think the citizenry has been, I think, generally pretty responsive to the understanding of social distancing, the understanding of staying inside. And the statisticians and modelers are theorizing we're on the other side of the curve, that the curve is, in fact, flattened and we're, we're coming down the other side. That's sort of the macro view. The micro view, the personal view is... It's been a really interesting six weeks of both challenge and and opportunity. Yeah, right. So tell me about the challenge. Tell me about, we, we spoke just before we started the interview, you, you have a mother that's that's in care right now. And that's sorry, a concern, right? Yeah, so the, you know, part of the challenge is the inability to, and I think we all suffer this right now, the inability to actually be with, care for loved ones. So I have a 91-year-old mom in um assisted living facility outside DC that's in complete lockdown. And the virus has taken hold in the facility. Many of the residents have contracted it, four have died in the last two weeks. And it's just brutally hard to know that my mother is in the midst of that. And that's it's made even harder by the fact that she has dementia. And it's actually hard to both reach her and even when I do reach her, she doesn't really understand what's going on. So it's just hard to convey, help her. It's a, it's a really difficult uh, situation, which I know I am not alone in. I know there are millions of people uh, around the world that have similar similar things going on. So I, I think, you know, certainly the biggest part of the biggest challenge is the inability to connect with care for loved ones. The irony is there's an opportunity in that, which I've realized, which is 
Um, the ability to connect with loved ones, my kids as an example, on a more frequent basis. And I realized that in the real world, the normal world, the before world, whatever you want to call it, if I'm with one of my kids, I can't call them the next day to be with them again because they're busy. And they might even think it's weird that, well, dad, I was just with you yesterday. There's, there's some sort of appropriate distance between when we get together because we're all busy. But when you remove busy from the equation, all of a sudden, I can be with you every day because I know and you know that neither of us are busy. And we're actually maybe even a little bit lonely and we actually are reminded of how much we love each other. And so like you and me, Toby, we can hang up right now and we could talk to each other tomorrow and there would be nothing weird about that. In the real or the normal world or the before world, that would be like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't ask Toby to have another conversation because you just had one with him yesterday. So the challenge or the, the struggle becomes, for me, has become also an opportunity. So in a, in a way, I'm speaking more to people I love now than I did before. And I think because of the crisis, the nature of the conversation is maybe a little bit more intimate and a little bit more honest and a li little bit more compassionate or loving than, than it might have been before. Again, that's an opportunity or a positive in that for sure. Yeah. Tell me, other than that opportunity to connect more frequently, that seems to be a really good way of getting through it for us all. What are you envisioning the other side of this looks like? Somebody asked me that question recently and proposed that this journey for people is exposing them to the truth of their own reality and maybe helping them see that parts of that reality, I'm talking about from the past, are not things they want to replicate or maintain or re-engage with going forward and that you know some large percentage of society will change its ways, change its behaviors, live life more authentically, it'll be less seduced by commercial pressure, consumerism, be more appreciative of intimate relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And I my response to her, woman Caroline, was I wish that to be true, but I I don't actually I don't believe it will happen for the majority. I, I you know I'm a big believer um, or a big fan of of Abraham Maslow and the hierarchy of need, and I think the vast majority of humans are pretty much focused on the first three levels of need, you know, food, water, shelter, c control, safety, and a belonging, and that that's pretty much all they care about. And I, you know, I, I, my sad fear is that when we get on the other side of this thing, I think for about three or six months, there will be some perpetuation of the current sentiment, gestalt, whatever. And then I think we'll probably revert back to our, call it our old ways. I do believe some smaller percentage of people will, will come out of this thinking differently and deciding to make different choices about how they want to live their life and trying to not resume the sort of transaction intensive, call it outside in behavior that they exhibited before. The, the thing I do hope for is that everything to be better on the other side. But the thing I particularly hope for is that at a systems level, our governments recognize that the dysfunction, the disparity, the, the divides that exist within our societies must be addressed uh, once and for all. So that 
you know, the pain of what we're going through will actually force policy development that results in a more equitable and fair existence for more people. I mean, we're seeing in the United States, particularly just a, a terrible exposure of the inequities. You know, the idea that the white collar worker who gets direct deposit is quarantined in his or her lovely home. Meanwhile, the essential service workers who are paid minimum wage are required to expose themselves to what is out there. It's just not right. And, you know, again, my hope is that one of the things that comes out of this is a real effort to correct a lot of the things that are not right. Yeah. Well, none of us know, but that's, that is certainly the hope, hope here as well. Tell me about business. You're a guy who travels, you speak a lot going on, you're a busy person, known you for a while. You emailed me, in fact, six or seven weeks ago, maybe. And it was something along the lines of, yeah, yeah, we'll talk if my travel plans are cancelled then. And if they aren't, we'll talk later. And I can remember reading it and thinking, well, why would they be cancelled? <laughs> so you're obviously hip to what was going on before I was this kind of early mm-hmm. on. So you are someone who travels with, with your work. Mm-hmm. What are you doing now differently in business because this has happened? You're writing. So that's probably okay. That's probably an okay thing to do. What else is happening? Yeah, well, just the specific thing that happened was I had six different speaking engagements all lined up across South America and the Middle East. And I was watching this thing closely. And it was literally like watching, you know, a, a map and like this thing going around the world. And it was, I'm just, I'm watching it heading towards the Middle East. And then I'm watching it head towards South America. And I'm like, I don't think this is going to happen. And sure enough, you know, all the talks were, they weren't canceled, but they were postponed for the foreseeable future. So what do I do in response to that? Well, it actually sort of goes back to what I was saying before in the sense that um, I really do believe the nature of man is is addicted. Many of us are are addicted to transactions, to actions, to movement. I called it in a piece I wrote recently, the seduction of pull. The pull is sort of the constant in our lives pulling us away to do, to engage, to create, to whatever. And that with the coronavirus epidemic, what a pandemic, all of a sudden there is no pull anymore. And what we are left with is what I term push, which is we are left with a blank piece of paper. We are left with a studio in your case, or a desk in my case. And the question is, what are we going to do with this blank piece of paper? What are we going to do with this nothingness? So my pull was all the speaking engagements, right? Every month of my life, somebody's saying, hey, come speak come talk, come whatever. And so I have these transactions and I have to get on planes and I have to write speeches and I'm running around and I'm feeling validated and I'm creating and and I don't really even have to think much about it. It's just I'm responding to the market's pull, right? Well, all of a sudden I had no pull. (laughs) Done. And so what do I do? How do I move into push mode where I'm creating of my own volition without the need for stimulus from outside And so my push effort has channeled into two endeavors. One is writing a book, which you mentioned, a speech I gave a year and a half ago in Singapore, which created my speaking careers titled Technology is Dead. It blew up and I spoke, I think, 16 times last year around the world, ostensibly around the same or similar topic. So I'm turning Technology is Dead into a book signed by actually a UK publisher, Taylor and Francis, So I'm doing that. So that's a big part of my push effort. 
and then the second part is I'm working uh, with two other people on a social impact fund and uh, incubation system to solve endemic social issues in a scalable way. And our focus area, our sector focus area is on clean energy, clean food, clean water, clean air, and looking at commercializable businesses that can um, have a material impact on those issues. So those are my two kind of push areas, I guess. And then the third one is I'm, uh, I'm cooking a lot, like a lot and having fun in the kitchen. And that's, you know, that's also in a way a blank slate. Like for most of us, I think, at least in, in Boston, Boston's a huge uh, restaurant town and takeout town. And most people don't make meals at home. And so that's been a, uh, that's been a great third area of my sort of creative exploration, starting from scratch uh, experience. That's that's great. I love the pull push analogy. And I've watched the technologies is dead speech. So I'll make sure I put a link in the show for that. Just one quick aside on the pull push. Uh, I sent out the the piece I wrote to about 1500 people that have followed me in, in a, on a blog I have. And um, I got a lot of reaction, positive reaction. But the, the common question was, how do you do this? Like, how do you move from a pull state, you know, where you're relying on external stimuli and forces and demands and intrusions? How do you actually move to a push state where you, of your own volition, create what is in front of you? And it's just been an interesting set of conversations with those. Did you come to any specific conclusions other than just start? I mean, I have a couple. I mean, I don't, as I said to all of them, I don't think there is an answer or a formula. I have a couple theories. One is, I think this is one theory is kind of wacky, but I think you may need to go through the seven stages of grief, like letting go of a, of a sort of central behavior to replace it with a new behavior is brutally hard. And I think it, it, it may require a conscious moving through all the emotions attached with the loss of something because you are talking about losing a central behavior. So that's like one wacky view. The second wacky view, well, kind of, it's not really a wacky view. It's basically what you just said. Like, you just got to do it, man. Like, your choice between a blank slate, filling in a blank slate, and what is the other choice? There is no other choice. <laughs> like, the pull's not coming back anytime soon. So I guess you could curl up in the corner of your studio and suck your thumb or, you know, choose differently. I don't know if you know this, but I, last year I published a book called This Is It. And the whole point of the book is this is the only life you get, man. This is it. So view the blank slate not as a problem, but actually as an opportunity to do things that you never never had time to do or to explore areas that you've always been curious about or, to, I don't know, play with your kid. I don't know. But try to get to a place where it's it's the upside or the opportunity is greater than the downside or the, you know, the problem you attach to it. I mean, you were saying the same about your own decision to start this podcast. You, all of a sudden, you had, a, you had no pull. Pull was on hold for a second. You're like, what do I do with this space? <laughs> I'm going to create a podcast. Yeah. Spending the last few years working with people, helping them make their own one, and kind of moving away from that and then realizing, actually, I do have a skill that I can deploy from home. Why don't I just make my own one? You know, right. But feeling like I had enough people in my life around me and my wider network who I wanted to speak to about just speaking to the connection part 
more frequently, speaking to that need, that basic human need, and realizing that the people that I know that are in my life and that have come into my life in the last few years are incredible. And therefore, there's no problem. I can phone people up and catch up with them. But equally knowing that sharing what they have to say is is valuable. At the least, it's a document. But at best, it's genuinely helping the people who are listening. And, and helping the people who are speaking and knowing that they're broadcasting it to an audience. The return could come back in a number of ways and at any time because the podcast will sit there for, for years, you know, and that's okay. So that's, that's how I've been able to address yeah. the blank slate. It's the theory of yeah. constraints, isn't it? Classic sort of, well, you know, are you going to, you going to stick your head in the sand or are you going to do something? Well, you know, this is, this is my version of yeah. doing something. I also think it's, it's, I think that's tr- absolutely true. And I think it's also fear of exposure. You know, the problem with a blank slate is if, when you go to fill it in, what you have done is exposed. The beauty of living in a pool world is people hide behind all the noise and all the transactions and all the interactions of others. And it's hard to actually put a spotlight on what you yourself did because it's so connected to all these other things. But in a push state, that blank slate is literally blank. And so you're exposing yourself to yourself, to the world, to your audience, to your friends, to your wife. And that's so scary. (laughs) And I think that's what causes pause more than, I don't know what to put on the blank slate. It's more, I might be judged by what I put on the blank slate. And that's what I was saying to you about my own, you know, podcast fears. Like, but what if nobody likes it? What if it's of no value? And therefore I'm like, I'm just, you know, not going to, not going to do it. And the answer is, it is going to be of absolutely no value to loads of people and probably most people in the world. But for some people, it's going to be a value and that's who it's for. And it's not for anyone else. And the other thing that came up, I had a personal call from a friend the other day who wanted to ask me some, uh, strangely, because this uh, doesn't really ever happen to me, but uh, a, fr- a friend of mine asked some advice about a girl who who he'd started dating. And it, it's someone, I didn't know they knew each other, but I, I know her. Uh, in fact, I knew her. I knew her 15 years ago. And he asked me some, he asked me some questions about what I thought about various things that were going on. And I prefaced it with everything that I'm about to tell you about this person that I know of is based on who she was 15 years ago. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I think as your friend, because I love you, but I'll also tell you that everything that I know about her personally, not hearsay, because I knew her very well at that time is based on who she was 15 years ago. And since then, she's become a mother. She's done all of these things. So, you know, I didn't think anything bad of her anyway, but it just it's just a moment in time, right? If someone said to you something about me based on me, you know, before, whenever that would be, a year or 10 years or 20 years, especially if it was 10 or 20 years, I'd be like, well, that's not who I am now. I've been through all of this stuff. So... It's the ongoingness of a podcast I like. It's the living part of the podcast I like versus this guy wrote a book 20 years ago and this is who he is because that's bullshit. 
you know, that's who he was 20 years ago. Helen Saltzman has a podcast called The Allusionist and it's all about language and it's it's kind of, it's a cute podcast. It's really good, um, kind of lesser known words and, and, and it's really fun. And one of the things that comes up all the time is she talks about how a dictionary is not a rule book. It's a document. So I, people are using language in a way uh, now that you, you, can't, you can't look up some of the words that people are using on the street today. It doesn't make them less valid because remember, don't be a pedant and don't go back and, and tell me, well, this is the right way to say it because language has evolved now as people do. I hope that's not too much of a diversion, but just comes to mind as people are worried and, and fearful that other people don't like their stuff because the answer is that's actually good because <laughs> it's not for everyone. It can't be for everyone. And you should exploit the fact that you're only, I'm only for these people. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing this for, for what my parents think of me. I'm doing it because it feels like it's what I can do today. I can't go out and play the drums today. There's no gigs. You know, whereas if it was anything else and something might have happened, I might have said, okay, right, I'm going to go back and try and get a show in the West End because I've had it, right? But I literally cannot do the other thing that I'm really good at. So I'm like, that's where I am. Is that sort of helpful for you? Yeah, it is. No, it is helpful. I mean, it, it actually echoes something. I was reading an article interview in the New York Times Magazine yesterday about um, with an, a Buddhist monk. And I think the other... The other opportunity in these very difficult times is to embrace the value of time and the value of moments in time. And I think we both overthink it and we underthink it. And what we need to be is just be in it and be present with it and explore our capacities within it, you know, and, and stop putting so much pressure. We either put no pressure at all which is a way of saying we're not even conscious of time, or we put too much pressure, which is we have to perform with this time. We have to, we have to make everybody happy with this time. And neither of those states or perspectives is what I would call healthy or even appropriate. And so I think what I got out of what you said is just, just be, and you know, your audience will find you or your, maybe they won't find you, but who cares? Like, if you seek to share your perspective, your thoughts, your whatever's, share them and, and leave it at that. And <laughs> I think that's good advice. Yeah, man. And that's why timely wisdom, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to use my skills to, to get wisdom from other people. I'm not, you know, not purporting to, to know the answer to this shit, but it seems to be a really good time to share my friends with the world. I do think, you know, something else you and I may have talked about is I, I, I've come to believe that the measure of a life is the level of intimacy you achieve. Intimacy with self, intimacy with loved, loved ones, family, intimacy with friends, intimacy with the world. And intellectual intimacy, emotional intimacy, in some cases physical intimacy. But then in order to achieve intimacy, you have to be both introspective and extrospective. And you have to be call it aggressive or assertive about reaching out and connecting and, and exposing yourself to this perspective and the truths of other people without judgment, but open to it. Because the more you take in, the more you can evolve your own capacities, your own understanding. 
And so in a way, what you are doing with this podcast is it's an intimacy, you know, enabler, right? Like you're, you're connecting to people, you're connecting people to people and you're, and the conversations you're having, I think are pretty dimensional, pretty human, pretty real. And that out of that, your audience should come away with a greater capacity to be intimate themselves. So kudos to you. Thank you, man. I've just had this meaningful, intimate conversation with you. And I've just had another one with someone else as well, who's been a good friend for a long time, who I just haven't seen for ages. And he's great. You know, he's a therapist, Howard Cooper. He'll be he'll be on at some point. So um, check out that. And at the end of that conversation, because he's a friend and, you know, it was, it was pretty, pretty informal, quite funny at some points because of what he said in this context, I was able to say to him uh, when I stopped pressing record, oh man, I spoke to this person. He's on episode X. You should check him out because actually I think you could really help him from where he is. And, and he went to that person's LinkedIn profile and was like, oh yeah, man, I'd love to get to know him. He looks cool. So and I've known those two people independently for a long time. And it's only because of the conversations that I'm having yep. in this context that I will connect them. And that's, that's a good result, right? That's a great result. It's a great result for everybody. Yeah. So to wrap this up, my last question has always been, so we'll continue to be uh, for you. S- since this has all happened away from your personal world and your business world, what have you seen um, it could be locally or online or whatever that has really impressed you. What behavior or, or or pivot or whatever you want to call it has surprised or impressed you since this has happened? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I have a couple couple quick answers to that. You know, one at a government level. I don't know if you've um, you've heard about Governor Cuomo from New York State. Um, but it's it's been interesting to watch different governors and different leaders, including our federal government leaders, um, how they have handled the crisis, uh, their response to the crisis. Um, and Cuomo has really, I mean, he's the talk of the country in terms of a leader that has shown an incredible balance of conviction, declaration, uh, making the hard decisions with empathy, compassion, sympathy, you know, real human understanding. And that's been a really wonderful thing to see. And it also, I think, reveals sadly that it's hard or rare to find that combination in in leaders. So that's been an interesting, I guess, outcome. I think more locally, and, and I think this is true of all crises, there's a divide. There are people that step into the into the void, that step into the problem, that are, that go to the front lines willingly, and then there are people that that recede, uh, maybe even run away. And um, I think what what I've seen in Boston is more, far more of the former, less of the latter, but definitely some of the latter. My own daughter is a social worker at Mass General Hospital, which is the biggest hospital in Boston, and. Uh, She's 26 years old, and she um, they they told they sent all the social workers home uh, several weeks ago, and she of her own volition, well, she raised her hand and said, "I would like to, I'd like to come back in," and um, gets makes me want to cry. But so she's blown me away with her own courage, and she's now in, I think, 
pretty much every day, every week. She works on the cardiac floor of the uh, ICU unit of the cardiac unit. Again, in, in times of, of struggle, some people are just amazing. And, and there's a, a great piece in the New York Times Magazine, again, about, about the frontline people in New York City and what their life has been like for the last several weeks. And I'm, I'm sure the same is true in London. You know, these first responders are unbelievably courageous, caring people willing to sacrifice potentially their own life and even the lives of, of the, their loved ones through association. And I, I, I've seen a lot of that, a lot of that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And um, yeah, it must feel amazing to have raised a daughter that cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I always knew she was an incredible young person, but like her behavior over the last six weeks is like, wow. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much for your time. And, um, you know, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, best of luck with the whole thing. I look forward to listening to all subsequent episodes. Rah. Thanks, man. All right. This episode of Crisis Cast 2020 was produced by me in London and Kate Astrakhan in Michigan, with artwork by Ryan Field and sound design by Lee Turner. Crisis Cast 2020 is a production from Podcast Network Solutions, a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce, and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more and grab your copy of Podstar if you're feeling pod curious, visit us at podcastnetworksolutions.com.